Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Sometimes major milestones zigzag past each other in weird ways. And it was just that sort of strange zigzag that happened this year when several months back, a striking shift occurred in America's labor force. We'd seen new highs in women's labor force participation. And in fact, women had overtaken men on non-farm payrolls. That's Betsy Stevenson, the former chief economist at the U.S. Department of Labor under President Obama. So women held more of the jobs in the country when it comes to jobs where you're taking home a paycheck. So those jobs where employers give you a job, you work there, you bring home the paycheck. That's the number we all look for once a month. How many jobs are there in the economy? In December, women held more of them. In January, women held more of them. In February, women held more of them. And then the pandemic hit. We'll get to that whole pandemic thing in a minute and how women's and men's paths may now diverge. But this year, a year that women entered in an extraordinary position, taking home more paychecks than men, well, it also marks 100 years since women got the right to vote. 100 years since a 23-year-old Tennessee state representative broke a tie and made Tennessee the last state that was needed to tip the scales in favor of the 19th Amendment. In August of 1920, with three quarters of states on board, the 19th Amendment was ratified. And by the way, that rep who cast that tie-breaking vote, his name was Harry Byrne, and he did not support a woman's right to vote. But his mother wrote to him telling him this was important. And another, by the way, it took until the 1980s for every state to sign on to the 19th Amendment. But anyway, the story of women getting access to more jobs, to more money, of course, that has been bound up with women's efforts to get more power in society at large. In 1920, not only do women get the right to vote, but Congress established the Women's Bureau at the Department of Labor to try to think about how to promote women in the labor force. Stevenson is now a professor of public policy and economics at the University of Michigan. And she says that even in 1920, when women accounted for just 8% of paid workers, they played a significant role, a role that would ultimately get much, much bigger. We really didn't see female labor force participation really take off until the 70s. But I, I think it's important to know that it, it really has been growing as far back. If you go back to the 1920s, we do still see a pretty upward trend in, in women in the labor force. That trend continued until about 2000 when it just stalled out. Then the 2008 recession hit. But in the last few years, women returned to work in large numbers. Which brings us back to what Stevenson said before that by early 2020, women had more paycheck-earning jobs than men. Remember this? In December, women held more of them. In January, women held more of them. In February, women held more of them. And then the pandemic hit. Stevenson says what women have to lose during this pandemic is enormous. And in a year celebrating the gains that women have made over the last century, we may end up seeing some shocking losses with ground that could be really tough to regain. So one thing that happened that just really knocked women off their feet was 
all the hospitals and doctor's offices that were providing non-essential care basically shuttered for parts of March and April. We've got dentist's office closed and uh, your dermatologist's office closed. And women are 78% of the of the workers and that healthcare services industry. Wow. And growth in healthcare services has accounted for 50% of the job gains that women have experienced in the 21st century. So that's their industry. That's where their job growth comes from. And it just got hammered. So the hope is people are going to go back to getting elective healthcare procedures, right? We're not going to stay at home afraid of the doctors forever. And so a lot of those jobs are going to come back. Now that said, you know, women's employment levels plummeted all the way uh, in its sort of low point of April, all the way back to where it had really been in the mid-1980s. That's a pretty big fall after having reached a peak in February, right? Within two months, we went, uh, you know, we took a really big step backwards. I think a lot of those jobs are going to come back, but there is a rot that's at the core of women's employment right now, and that's childcare and elder care. Yeah. And how women are going to maintain their place in the labor force when we're really having a crisis of care in the country. Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit, this issue of child care. Um, I mean, just on a very personal level, so many women I know who are working are have been scrambling for months to deal with child care for their kids. And that could be a two-year-old, it could be a six-year-old, it could be an eight-year-old. I mean, I guess I wonder if that's going to cause that scramble is going to cause more women to just drop out of the workforce because, like, what are you supposed to do with your children? Yes, exactly. So I think the important thing to realize is the ways in which caregiving typically impacts women's labor market outcomes really occurs slowly over time. So caregiving leads women to choose jobs with more flexibility, with shorter commutes, uh, they may switch to a, a job that's just a little bit less demanding, or they might take a spell out of the labor market, and that spell out of the labor market ends up impacting the kind of job they get coming back in. They may turn down a promotion, which just slows how their careers grow over time. So this isn't the kind of thing that we're going to see fall off a cliff in April or May or June. So when we look at these numbers and we say, oh, look, you know, women's employment's way down, oh, it's come you know, roughly like a third of the way back. So maybe it'll just keep coming. I think that we have yet to see the real impact of this care crisis. So there's a, some women who are going to not go back to work because of the child care issues. And some haven't been forced to reckon with that because their employers haven't asked them to return physically and they're managing to juggle. The question is, how long will they juggle before they feel burnt out? Um, how long will their employers let them juggle? And how will we like start to really think about how we help people manage their you know, caregiving needs with their work? And of course, the, the answer is that we all hope that there is childcare that returns at the end of this. But then there's also, I think we've revealed that Childcare is just essential for a giant share of the workforce. And to just ignore it and keep pretending it's a personal problem is a mistake in thinking about the macroeconomy. 
I mean, it also seems like the answers that people have come up with are so patchwork, right? Some people have grandparents who can help, although maybe you don't really want to bring grandparents into the whole coronavirus equation, but it doesn't matter because some people just have to. Um, Other people might have a neighbor. Some people might have a spouse. Maybe somebody was laid off or furloughed. But somebody, some people just have nobody, and they have jobs that they actually, you know, depends on the person. Some people don't have to show up. Some people, you can't, like, be a nurse or a chef from your house. So, yeah, the, the, let's start with the patchwork issue. And the yes. patchwork issue is going, occurred long before COVID. And the problem with COVID is it didn't just disrupt formal care. It's actually disrupted informal care as well. And that's thrown everyone into disarray. So you may have been you know, a single mom working the night shift as a nurse, bringing your kids over to their grandparents' house to spend the night, and now you don't think that's safe. So that's not a care solution that's going to work for you anymore. At least it comes with a much bigger cost. And are you willing to pay that cost? Is your Are your parents willing to pay that cost? And that's a really hard question. You know, um, something that has just stuck with me from the beginning of the pandemic was my, my 10-year-old daughter was crying and and scared about it. And I said, you know, honey, it's really, kids are fine. You're going to be fine. And she's like, you know what's worse than getting sick and dying from COVID? Getting sick and giving it to your parents or your grandparents and having them die of it. And my 10-year-old could process this idea that she wouldn't know how to manage that guilt and that that was a real possibility in it. So if you're making that choice, even if your parent says... I'm willing to take this on, and you think I'm willing to take on this risk, you also have to think about how your kid will feel if the risk ends up with a bad outcome. So these are really complicated issues for people. And I think that we have exposed the problem with patchwork care. It's a patchwork that now has holes everywhere. And people don't know what to do. Some people have quit their jobs. They've had to. And the unemployment insurance... Uh, system, we tried to put a new patch in there by saying, okay, if you have to be home to care for kids, you can get unemployment insurance. But that's not forever, right? That's going to expire. And it also, we know that, you know, if you stay home, maybe it's six months, maybe it's a year, you're going to have a hard time getting back in because we don't have an economy that lets people enter and exit the labor force very easily. Can you talk about... um Obviously, both men and women have children. Um, can you talk about like the relative difference in how this is affecting men and women? Is it very? I mean, we often do think of women as the childcare providers, but can you put numbers to that? Is is it really disproportionate? Have things changed? You know, because because times have changed. So I think there's a glass half full and a glass half empty story. And I'm a kind of optimistic person, so let's start with a glass half full. Okay. And the glass half full story is that we see that when men get experience taking care of kids, they tend to do a better job of taking on more responsibility going forward, right? So we've seen in studies where men actually take paternity leave because it's been sort of thrust upon them in a use it or lose it way, that they are more engaged parents providing more of the child care than if they hadn't taken the paternity leave. So practice tends to yield more engaged behavior. And we've just forced men to do a lot more 
housework and childcare work than they've ever done before. We've taken a lot of what was hidden. Maybe the guy didn't see what was going on when he was in the office. And now it's all visible because everybody's at home watching what's happening. So in that, we might see a lot of men start to reckon with what, what is the right share? What should they be doing? How much should they be taking on? We might see men who start doing things they've never done before. You know, they now, they've gotten used to doing the laundry, so they start doing the laundry. They've gotten used to being the parent who did half the teaching, so they do more of the help with homework. Um, so we, we could see more engaged dads. Now, the glass half-empty side. The glass half-empty side is that women do more of the childcare work and more of the work around the house than men. And also, I think that it's more the fact that that work needs to be done is more salient for women. So uh, women seem to be a little bit less willing, less able, you know, uh, in a game of chicken, if the... (laughs) The, you know, the guy is driving towards the cliff of not feeding the children and the woman's driving toward the cliff of not feeding the children. Like she pulls off first and she feeds the children. Right. It's just that. And the problem is that if he knows she's going to, you know, pull off first. Right. Right. Then he wins the game of chicken. He knows there's a safety net. Yeah. Yeah. And that we know that that happens. We know that that is happening. And that sort of pushes women more back into their traditional role. And when women are just like, I can't, there's too much. I need to step back. That will then reduce their earnings as a share of household income, which will make them a less important labor market player in their household which then reinforces their role as being important for providing household tasks like, you know, cleaning and childcare and elder care. So, you know, what has pushed men to a greater place of equality in the home is that women's earnings are very close to being on par with men's in the home. If we look at married couples, a very large share of women out earn their husbands and a very large share are earning something that's, you know, close to equal to what their husband earns. So, you know, if it used to be when husbands were bringing home 70% of the income and the wives were bringing home 30% of the income, it was clear that she was the person who needed to step up and do the child care if there was a work-related problem. When he's bringing home 55% and she's bringing home 45% or he's bringing 52 and she's bringing 48, it's really not easy to prioritize his job over hers. They kind of need both of them to pay all their bills. You know, so a lot of households are in that situation right now. That makes me optimistic. What makes me pessimistic is I, I think we saw a much steeper decline in female employment and female labor force participation in the last few months. And if that stays down, that's going to have repercussions that last, really, I think, the rest of those women's lives. Hmm. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking to Betsy Stevenson. She's the former chief economist at the U.S. Department of Labor. She's a professor at the University of Michigan now. We're looking at the incredible effect that the pandemic is having on women in the workforce. We're going to come back in just a minute to continue this discussion You can grab our conversations every week by subscribing to Innovation Hub on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From WGBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. 
Welcome back to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. When Los Angeles and San Diego schools announced on July 13th that they would not have kids return to physical school this fall, they would go virtual instead, it was big news for a few reasons. First, the Los Angeles Unified School District is the largest school district in the country. Second, it meant that kids who went home in March will not presumably be back in a classroom until January, if then. And third, it was also a story about a lot more than kids. Because if kids can't go back to school, then many parents can't go back to work. And then we're talking about massive economic pain. Economist Betsy Stevenson says the summer has kind of papered over that pain. I'll say, speak from my experience, um, you know, I was like, okay, do some Khan Academy coding and don't bug me. I'm about to go do a radio interview. Stevenson is a professor of public policy and economics at the University of Michigan, and she's a former member of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. But they can sort of do things on their own, and I'm not responsible right now for ensuring that they're in their Zoom class or completing their Zoom assignment. I don't have to be over their shoulder. I have to just feel good about whatever experiences they're having in the day. When the fall comes, I think a lot of parents are going to have PTSD from having homeschooled slash Zoom schooled, right, in the in the spring. And I think there's going to be a lot of push comes to shove in terms of how parents are going to manage that if kids are home most of the time. We could be looking at a generational or multi-generational setback for American women, who right around the start of 2020 surpassed men in the number of paychecks they took home. A hundred years ago, this summer, when women got the right to vote, they were only about 8% of the labor force. But women still, even a hundred years on, spend more time on average on childcare than men. They do more housework, and something's just gonna have to give this fall which is a sentiment we heard on this show just a few weeks ago from Jenna Ruiz, a mom who lives in Flint, Michigan. I have, you know, Owen who is six and we also have a three-year-old and I cannot imagine sending them to our normal babysitter who is my college cousin. She also launches my two-year-old niece. So she'll have a two-year-old, a three-year-old, and then would have to teach a six-year-old classroom lessons all day. I don't see that being feasible. So then at that point, I get worried, what am I going to have to do with my job? Economist Betsy Stevenson says parents who have to physically go to work, they've been making some very hard choices. But those choices are going to ripple out, increasingly to white-collar workers. The really important thing is to think about whether Congress is going to work to make sure that child care is available to people. Child care centers were not exactly running on uh, thick profit margins and so getting hit the way they got hit, I think we're going to see the childcare industry really suffering and even small, high quality programs that just can't afford to keep going. You know, if you put, want to put it in perspective, the Congress through the CARES Act gave more money to Delta Airlines, one single airline, than it did to the entire childcare industry in the United States. We care about making sure that the we can get back on airplanes once it's safe to do so. We don't seem to be caring as much that our kids can get back into childcare centers. And that's a mistake that's gonna hold the entire economy back. So we need people to start caring about that 
Not because they care about the parents. Not, not even because they care about kids. But they got to realize that parents are an important part of the economy and they're not going back to their physical jobs without childcare. Right, right, right. You know, maybe it was a dozen years ago, something like that, when uh, Sheryl Sandberg ta- started talking about leaning in and how women ran very little, right? Didn't They didn't run very many governments. They didn't run very many nonprofits. They didn't run very many corporations. And that's still mostly true. Um, I wonder if the repercussions, you know, everything that we've been talking about, which is women thinking, maybe I have to dial it back in terms of this job or drop out for a couple of years. I got to, there's certain pressing things I, you know, care about my children. I've got to help them. I wonder if we're going to see the repercussions of that 10, 20 years out because the women who were on the path to be the leaders maybe won't ever be those leaders because they stepped off the ladder and they can't get back on or something like that. Or they get back on, but it never takes them all the way to the top. Well, you know, if things go the way they've gone in the past, that's going to happen for sure. That's what I really think that that will happen. But I think we're at a moment where we can have a really important change when we're just not going to take it anymore. It's not going to be the same. And I, I really hope that that's true. And I, I think what has been fundamentally revealed to people is that childcare is not just a personal problem. If you think about our past, healthcare was once thought to be a personal problem. And now we see healthcare as a national problem, a national issue. How do we get people coverage? How do we control prices? Now, we have in the past thought you know, that things like retirement was a personal problem. And we now see that as a problem where we need a government solution, right? We have social security. Um, It is time for us to realize that childcare is a national problem. Every bit a national problem as healthcare or retirement. And we need to really think not only how is it that we provide high quality childcare to children, but it's way deeper than that. How is it that parents make time and space in their life for caring for their children and advancing their career? How is it that children, adult children, make time and space in their life for caring for their adult parents and achieving their careers? We've talked for a long time about workplace flexibility and the important ways in which you know we should allow people to navigate back and forth, but it's really been a lot of cheap talk. If you don't lean in the whole time, you don't make it to the top. But leaning in the whole time is really, really hard if you want to take time to really engage with your children. And that's true for men and for women. And so we just need a very different conversation about what does life look like when you make space for both. I guess I just wonder, I mean, you, you cited healthcare. We are still kind of in a national debate about whether healthcare is a personal issue or it should be, everybody should be entitled to it. I mean, uh, many, many developed countries left that debate behind a long, long time ago, right? And decided, you know what? Everybody should have a healthcare. In fact, many other developed countries also left behind the debate long ago, should people have access to high quality like preschool? And many countries say yes. Do you think really we could be at a point where we say yes to both of those things, both on healthcare and, and the preschool front? Well, 
let's let's start with education because that's a place where the U.S. led. We were the first country in the world to try to expand high school to everybody. We were mocked by you know many other countries who said, "Oh, people don't need a, a high school degree. What are you doing?" The idea of free access to K through 12 education was a revolution. And now we realize we just, K was the wrong starting point. We need to start it younger. And why have we fallen behind on our education? You know, I think it's a mistake and people, we find changing the status quo very hard in our system. And we managed to create a system where, you know, nobody's debating getting rid of the K through 12, but you know, it seems really hard to add those one or two years extra. That shouldn't be that hard. And I, I really think we can get there. You know, you, you mentioned healthcare and it is true that we still continuously have uh, debates about you know, the, the ACA and other ways in which we can reduce, um, ensure that everybody has access to care, but at the same time realize that 50% of healthcare in this country that's not paid out of people's pockets is paid for by the government and the other half is paid by private insurers. So we are in a place where half the country has access to government provided health insurance and the real debate is what we should do with the other half. Um, so somehow we ended up cleaving our country in two with people below the age of 65 being asked to fend for themselves for lots of things, and people over the age of 65 getting access to health care, getting access to income support. And, you know, I think that it's time for us now to look really hard at the people under age 18 and ask, shouldn't we at least be spending putting the kinds of resources that we put into helping ensure the quality of life of people over the age of 65 and saying, "Mm, shouldn't we put those kind of resources into ensuring the quality of life and the investment in their future in people under the age of 18? I wonder about the issue of um, inequality. We we touched on it a little bit, talking about what white-collar workers have been able to do in terms of dealing with their kids uh, versus what, like, Blue collar work. If you have to show up in person for your job, that's a very different story. Um, I remember a few months ago, very beginning of the pandemic, I was talking to the economist David Otter at MIT, and he said there will be situations, um, and probably a lot, where where employers will realize they don't need, uh, you know this many people working in their restaurant or working in their store. Like the the, the employees will go away thinking they'll come back and the employers will be like, mm, I probably don't need all those people. And I, I wonder how you think structurally things are going to change when we think about that issue of inequality. Is it white collar workers that aren't going to go back? Is it blue collar workers? Like, where's the most pain going to be felt? So, you know, I think the most pain will be felt at the bottom end of the income distribution. And I think it's sort of like a, there was a one-two punch. The first is that restaurants and leisure and hospitality um, and retail, particularly in stores, these are all pretty low-paid jobs. And they are all jobs where you know people are just not rushing back. Right. Um, And it may be we may not get back there till we have a vaccine. 
And at that point, you know, how we consume and interact with those kinds of stores will have changed. And that's the second part of this one-two punch, which is that all of those things have substitutes that uh, have to do with technology. And one of the things COVID has done has just been an enormous shock to our experience in using technology. And so, you know, where it may have taken my, you know, older mother another two or three years to learn how to use Instacart in a world without COVID, she now knows how to use Instacart. So we knew like jobs in retail stores were on the way down to begin with due to technological change. And I think that COVID accelerated that technological change and we're going to be where we probably would have been in 2023 or 2024. Anyhow, we're going to be there sort of right away. But that said, I do think that ultimately the pain of COVID and how it hits the economy will be more diffuse than what we've seen in the first few months. So right now, what we've mostly felt is the pain that comes from everybody sort of staying home and not buying in the way that we bought before because we're afraid to go out and shop. What we're about to experience is the pain of people not buying things because they don't have as much money as they used to have. And that is going to start hitting across the board. We're going to see white collar workers losing their jobs. And I think what will happen in households where women lose their jobs or where they're facing going back to much riskier jobs than they had previously anticipated, I think we're going to see more women opting out. So some will lose their jobs and then we'll be like, I got to take care of my kids anyhow. I'm not going to try to find something else. There's not that many jobs available anyhow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I think you're going to see others where you think if you're a dental hygienist with a two-year-old at home right now, and you're thinking about whether you should go back to this job where somebody, you know, you're going to have a face shield on every day and hope that you're not getting sprayed with COVID as you work on people's teeth. But gee, it is riskier than when you signed up for that job in the first place and you don't have anybody looking after your kids. It's just not sounding like a great time to go back to work. And so we might see a bunch of women taking some time out. And the question will be whether we find a way to get them back in the labor force as childcare comes back, or whether this sort of has a permanent scarring effect on them. Hmm. Betsy Stevenson is a professor of public policy and economics at the University of Michigan. Betsy, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. It's great talking with you today. And on our website, we've got lots more about the long-term effects that the pandemic may have on women, their employment status, their salaries, maybe roles that they're going to have in leadership. Amazingly, there are already studies being done looking at the effect of having kids home when you're a two-parent working family. We've collected some really interesting research for you. That's at innovationhub.org. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.